It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 2nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this week I find myself in kind of a funny spot. I'm one of those people who has been for years a Corral Draw fan. But now Adobe Illustrator is beginning to look kind of good to me. I've always considered Corral's sparse tool set that combines a lot of related tools under a single icon to be the best possible way to keep the on-screen clutter down to a minimum. And I've always felt that Adobe applications really didn't make very good use of screen real estate, dropping tools just all over the place. Well, apparently, somebody at Adobe also felt that. CS3 has been released, the CS3 suite, and Adobe Illustrator has been, along with all of the other applications in the package, upgraded substantially. Now, keep in mind, I'm a non-designer. I'm probably still more comfortable with the Corel product because it's what I've used for close to 20 years. But this version of Illustrator is enough to make me sit up and really pay attention. People who are designers are particularly happy with some new color management features that are in Illustrator. A color guide feature generates entire color schemes based on a selected color. For people like me who have little or no sense of color compatibility and only the most rudimentary understanding of color theory, This is really nice. Color Guide isn't going to make me an award-winning designer, but it will keep me from making horrid color errors. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, you'll see some examples. All I have to do is select a base color and then tell Illustrator what kind of scheme I'm looking for. Now, because I don't really understand color theory... I'm at a loss to understand when I might want complementary colors, when I might want analogous colors, monochromatic colors, or triad colors. If I really get stuck there, I can ask my designer daughter, Katie. But whatever I I pick, whichever method I pick, the colors that are selected will be pretty tastefully matched. Now, there are specialized programs that exist to do exactly that, but it's nice having the feature built in. And then there's Live Color. This is another one that has designers pretty excited. To illustrate how this works, again, you're going to have to take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website. I started with a turkey, standard issue, Thanksgiving turkey, fall colors, And then I decided to use Live Color to make a high-contrast version. Pretty garish colors. That reminds me of a cartoon. And I tried a kind of a monochromatic turkey. Let's say that as a designer, now we're getting pretty creative here and beginning to even think I'm a designer, but humor me. As a designer, I've created something in full color using the four-color press method, CMYK color. And let's say that my client suddenly has a cash flow problem. They can no longer afford my beautiful 
four-color brochure. They're going to have to do it in two colors, or maybe even just one color. That's where the live color feature really begins to sing and dance. You can match the colors that you've created in the four-color, the full-color piece, to specific shades of the colors you have available to you. For example, I came up with a blue and yellow University of Michigan turkey. On the website, you'll see how I was also able to select bright colors, some desaturated colors for kind of a faded turkey, and then fruit colors, kind of a bubblegum turkey. So I like the new features, and I like a lot of the interface. But on the other hand, there was one thing that didn't change that disappointed me. Illustrator continues its standard method of applying colors, and compared to the way Corel Draw does it, I think it's clumsy. In Draw, I can apply a fill, the inside color, and a stroke, the color of the line surrounding an item, in just three clicks. Select the object, left-click for the fill color, right-click for the stroke color. Done. Now, to do that with Illustrator, I have to select the object, then click a tool and tell Illustrator whether I want to work with the stroke or the fill, and then click the color on the palette. And then I have to go back and do the same thing to get the stroke color. Now, that doesn't seem like a big difference, but it is inefficient. It's clumsy, a lot of mousing around. Now, Adobe probably has a very good reason for keeping old methods People have been using Illustrator through more than a dozen iterations, and they would probably find it very disconcerting to have the method changed now. Okay, so no big deal. Illustrator also continues to have what they call a select tool and a direct select tool. Now, I wonder if I'm the only user who has trouble figuring out which tool to use For what tasks? It seems to me that in most cases, it doesn't matter very much which one I choose. And then there are the special tools for free transform, scale, and rotate. Why aren't those all combined? New to this version of Illustrator is an eraser tool, and it's causing just about as much of a stir among Illustrator users as the invention of this tool did when CorelDRAW came up with it several versions back. The eraser works on whatever object is selected, so the user can simply select an object with either the select or the direct select tools and start erasing. Unselected objects are left alone. Now, what makes this so powerful is that the user can modify an image without having to concentrate on the finer points of vector images. You don't have to worry about paths and anchor points and angles. You just erase. For Mac users who have computers that have Intel processors inside, the upgrade is not optional. It's really essential. That's because Illustrator CS3 is a universal binary application. It means it'll run full speed on the new Macs. If you have a new Mac and you try to use one of the older versions, then it has to go through a translation process, and that slows it down. And for Windows users, Illustrator CS3 is certified for both XP and Vista. Illustrator has some other features that are pretty neat. Document profiles and templates, for example. Now, if you create a lot of print documents, a single setting creates a letter-sized CMYK color space with point measurements and 300 DPI graphics. 
If you prefer measurements in inches and you normally create a horizontal tabloid page, then you can set up your own profile that creates all of those settings in a single click. For more involved projects, there are templates that can include guides, graphics, text, and other features. These things make the design process faster by eliminating a lot of the startup and preparation. Now, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the new Illustrator interface. If you've seen Illustrator in the past, you know that typically there were a lot of tools scattered all over the document. That's no longer the case. Now they all sit over on the right-hand margin. When you need one of the tools, all you need to do is click it, and it expands. Very nice. And as I'm talking about Illustrator, you may be wondering, what about freehand? Freehand is, of course, the macromedia application that used to compete with Illustrator. But Adobe now owns all of the macromedia products, and that includes freehand. So what's going to happen with freehand? Well, I always considered freehand to be a little more than an also-ran in the vector race. It did have a following, though. And Adobe hasn't said a lot about freehand's future. Some people have suggested that Adobe would just simply kill all products that compete with theirs. Now, that's not likely. Uh, or that features from some of the macromedia applications will be folded into the Adobe products, and that seems like the most logical answer. My speculation is that Adobe will keep the strongest product. That means it'll keep Macromedia Dreamweaver and get rid of Adobe's own Go Live. It also means that features from the orphans will be added to the surviving applications. There are days when I wish that Adobe would simply acquire Corel and gain some of the interface features in Draw and some of the capabilities of Ventura Publisher. If you're making the move from freehand to Illustrator, I am told by former freehand users that importing their old freehand files into Illustrator isn't as painful as they thought it would be. The import filter works well, they say, and most of the objects that get imported make the transition properly. So bottom line, four cats. My brain and my hands are still too closely tied to Corel Draw to give Illustrator five cats. But I probably would if... I had been an Illustrator user. If you currently use Illustrator CS2 and you upgrade, you'll be delighted. If you're using an earlier version of Illustrator and you upgrade, you will be astonished. I've been thinking a lot about operating systems lately, and probably over the next several weeks, I'll talk a little bit more about operating systems, because of some convergence. If anything, it's getting harder to pick an operating system. You buy a new Intel-based Mac, and if you wanted to, you could install Apple's OS X. It would, of course, already come with that installed. You could add Microsoft's Vista, pick any one of four versions, or you could add XP, or you could add Linux. Dozens of variants to choose from there. And actually, if you had enough disk space, you could have the Mac operating system, one or more Microsoft operating systems, and one or more Linux operating systems, all on a single machine. It creates some interesting possibilities. Now, on a standard machine, that would be a non-Apple machine, you couldn't mix and match quite as much. You can't put OS X on the machine, easily anyway. 
You can in some cases, but I wouldn't try. But you can mix and match Microsoft operating systems and one or more versions of Linux. Linux is by far the most difficult decision to make because even if you limit your distributions, you'll consider to just those available in English and aimed at the general public for use on an Intel-based machine and still maintained by the developer, you have more than 50 choices. Widen the scope a bit, and you could easily come up with 150 or 200 possible Linux distributions. So what's the right operating system? One from Microsoft? One from Apple? Or one of the Linux variants? The advice in the past has always been to figure out what you want to use a computer for. Identify all the applications that will do that particular job, and then match the operating system and the hardware to the software. Today's hardware and operating systems all have applications that will do just about anything you might want to do, so that advice is no longer particularly valid. If you need to create professional videos, you're going to be using a Mac. If you're developing computer games, you're going to find that a Windows machine offers the most flexibility. But that Windows machine could actually be a Mac. Now, if you're a scientist or you plan to run an Internet hosting company, you're going to be running Linux machines. Those are specialties. For most people, the operating system really is no longer the deciding factor. Even the look and feel of the various systems is less of a factor than it once was. Windows machines put the taskbar at the bottom, but if you want, you can move it to the top, the left, or the right. The Linux equivalent is called the panel. It goes, with most distributions, at the top. But some put it at the bottom, and you can put it on the left and right. Macs put their dock again, the equivalent of the taskbar, on the bottom. But if you want, you can position it on the left or the right. By default, you can't put it at the top, but there are third-party applications that will allow you to do that. All three operating systems have task switchers to let you pop from one task to another. Apples have widgets on the screen. Windows machines have gadgets on the screen. And Linux machines have desklets. All three operating systems have an icon or perhaps a button that when you click it will minimize all the applications running so that you can get to the desktop immediately. Disk drives in Windows have drive letters, but there are names associated with them. Disk drives on Apple machines have names. Disk drives on Linux machines have what are called mount points, but the operating system can make these look like drive letters or named drives. All three operating systems offer indexing so that any attached drive can be indexed for faster searching. It goes on and on like that. More similarities than differences. And when it comes to software, the widest selection of commercial applications, of course, available for Windows machines. But, of course, as I've mentioned, that really could be a Mac. Some applications run only under Windows. A few applications run only on Macs. Linux systems often will not run Windows applications, although there are some abilities that you can add to a Linux machine that will allow some Windows applications. You're not going to run a Mac application on a Linux machine. The Linux machines run open source applications. These are 
similar to their commercial counterparts, OpenOffice, for example, is like Microsoft Office. If your work doesn't depend specifically on the features of applications available only in those Windows and Mac applications, then Linux is a reasonable choice. Now, if you're, for example, an editor who depends very heavily on track changes in Microsoft Word, don't try using Linux. You need Microsoft Word for that job. But if what you're doing is primarily just typing letters, OpenOffice will work just fine. Lately, I have been playing with Microsoft's Vista, which I've mentioned that I do like, and XP. Also, in the past week, I've been able to take a look at Apple's Leopard, the latest version of OS X. And for a few weeks, I've been working with Ubuntu's Gusty Gibbon Linux. I see features in all of these operating systems that I like, but there are also shortcomings in each and every one. When I encounter articles on a Mac-centric website or a Mac magazine that refer to Vista as an utter failure, I have to wonder just what planet the writer lives on. Likewise, there are those anti-Mac articles you'll find written by Linux chauvinists or Windows chauvinists. And, of course, there's no shortage of Windows wackos either. Articles by these folks generate a lot of heat. They're probably good for ratings or web traffic or magazine sales, but they really don't create a lot of light, and they certainly don't help people determine which operating system is going to be the best for their individual needs. There is no perfect operating system. But whichever option you choose, whether it be Windows, Mac, or Linux, it's probably going to be able to handle just about anything you ask it to do. Now, if money is no object, my advice would be to go out and buy the fastest Intel-based Apple you can find, load it up with lots of memory, lots of disk space, and then install Vista and Linux along with Leopard. If money is a large object, well, then a sub-$500 computer, and that includes the monitor, keyboard, and mouse, with one of the Linux distributions, will probably do everything you want it to do. This report, for example, started out on a notebook computer running OpenOffice Writer under Ubuntu Linux. I then prepared it for the website in Adobe Dreamweaver CS3 on Microsoft XP. Did some final editing under Microsoft Vista. Uh, some of the components used, some of the images, were generated, edited, or prepared on a Mac running OS X 10.4. So these systems will work together. You can transfer files around pretty well. In coming weeks, my thought is to talk about operating systems a little more than usual. And the reason for that is that now, for the first time in a long time, Computer users have a lot of valid alternatives. You may remember back in early November that I mentioned that I was going to be a poll worker this year in the general election. Well, I did that. turned out to be a very interesting and, I think, worthwhile task. And, in fact, I have volunteered to do it again next year. Because this is an issue that isn't really a technology issue, although there's certainly technology involved with the voting machines, I'm not going to include it in the podcast portion of the program, but there is a rather lengthy description of my day on the website. So if you want to take a look at it, 
thoughts of a first-time poll worker down toward the bottom of the show on www.techbiter.com. Let me know what you think. The Franklin County Board of Elections provides, I think, very thorough training for the poll workers. I was impressed tremendously by the enthusiasm of the people at the Board of Elections and more impressed, I think, by the process and the procedure. You'll see that when you read the article on the website. In Nerdly News, when you use a search engine to look for something, you'd like to think that the search engine will return only clean sites. But you can't really count on that. Sunbelt Software has been investigating search engine optimization poisoning for months and released a lot of information on that topic this past Monday. By Wednesday, Google had purged thousands of websites, yes, thousands of websites that served malware to unwary searchers. The only problem is, from my point of view, is that Google won't even admit that it did the right thing. Google is big. Google is powerful. Google does a lot of good things. It does a lot of things right. But sometimes Google, despite its effort to hire only geniuses, does some astonishingly dumb things. Computer World, one of the big magazines in the industry, tried to get Google to admit they had done the right thing, but, and here I quote Computer World, Google itself refused to confirm or deny that it had cleansed its index of more than 40,000 malware hosting sites, or even that they had existed. Now, I've tried to communicate with Google's PR folks in the past. They don't take phone calls, at least not from me. Now, I thought perhaps they would take phone calls from Computer World, but apparently not. Again, quoting Computer World, quoting a company spokesman from Google, Google takes the security of our users very seriously, especially when it comes to malware, company spokeswoman said today in an email. In our search results, we try to warn users of potentially dangerous sites when we know of them. Sites that clearly exploit browser security holes to install software such as malware, spyware, viruses, adware, and Trojan horses are in violation of the Google quality guidelines and may be removed from Google's index. Again, that's Computer World quoting an email from a Google employee. Now, I have to wonder what the reaction would be if Microsoft or Apple behave that way. You try to contact the PR folks, and they respond only by email. Why does Google continue to get away with this kind of secrecy? Is it because they're not evil? And I don't know whether this is good news or no news. The FBI has been going after creeps who run botnets and has managed to get eight people indicted. They're really excited about it. That's right, I said eight. Well, that's great, but... At that rate, it's probably going to be sometime in 2372 that they'll all be caught, and chances are that by then they're all going to be dead anyway, long before 2100. The eight are thought to have been responsible for infecting one million computers and running scams that cost victims more than $20 million. Again, that's great. I'm glad they got eight of them off the streets, but that's only eight. The FBI called it Bot Roast 2. Those who run botnets gain control of computers by using malicious software then use them for illegal purposes. Earlier this year, the FBI conducted its first bot roast, and that one identified over one million botnet crime victims. 
The FBI says it's going to continue to work on the problem, but that isn't enough. For your own safety, it is up to you not to click on suspicious links. And until proven otherwise, all links are suspicious. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 2th, 2007. All right, December 2nd. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.